this gentleman refers to himself as Mr. Wonderful from Tampa, Florida, weighing 252 pounds, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. What can be said about Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff that he didn't already say himself? I'm the greatest wrestler, for none, the greatest athlete to ever come out of the state of Florida. When you got a body like this... In a face like this, you can do any damn thing you want to do. Orndorff began his career in the late 70s. He grappled with the likes of fellow WWE Hall of Famers, the Big Cat, Ernie Ladd, and Greg the Hammer Valentine. He was destined for greatness from day one, and in 1985, graced the grandest stage of them all. WrestleMania 1, Orndorff and Hogan formed a partnership that quickly turned volatile. Orndorff turned his back on Hogan, and in a clash of super egos, their tenuous alliance was shattered before 64,000 fans in Toronto. That led to a classic steel cage match on Saturday night's main event. He was the personification of arrogance and excellence, the master of the pile driver, a forerunner to the modern-day superstar. In short, he was simply wonderful. The WWE Hall of Fame is honored to welcome Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff. Welcome into this very special edition of Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Hood. As we look back at the life and times of Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, who passed away this week. When I hear this theme of Mr. Wonderful when Paul Orndorff was in WCW, and this is produced, of course, by Jimmy Hart. I sometimes think that that was a rib because the music was just so ridiculous. But that was a theme song for Paul Orndorff when he wrestled uh, in WCW. Well, we'll get a chance to go back in time and talk about one of the all-time greats, Paul Orndorff. 
And not one of the all-time greats because he passed away this week. He's one of the all-time greats because he earned that title. He earned the right to be called one of the all-time greats. He was a terrific football player uh, playing in Tampa, Florida. Started his wrestling career in the late 70s, and we'll get there first. Because Orndorff was a terrific, tremendous football player. Was drafted in the National Football League by the New Orleans Saints. He did not pass the physical, so he went into professional wrestling. The one thing about wrestling, this is the way it is now in 2021, but definitely was the case in the past. If you have an athletic background, you have an opportunity to be in professional wrestling. There's been a lot of wrestlers that have played at a high level or played at a collegiate level. They had the opportunity to play in uh, the WWE or be able to play in WCW or anywhere in professional wrestling because of their background. And so Paul Orndorff, with the opportunity, after playing football, drafting the NFL, tried his hand at professional wrestling, and he was very good. Starting in the late 70s, he was with Eddie Graham in the Florida Territory for uh, Florida Championship Wrestling. And then he was able to go to the National Wrestling Alliance and spend some time in Mid-Atlantic. As a matter of fact, Paul Orndorff was a tag team champion in his first year with Jimmy Superfly Snuka. That sounds like a very unlikely tag team, right? Snooker and Orndorff together, but they mesh as a tag team. Here's an opportunity to hear uh, Paul Orndorff in 1978, December of 78, with Jimmy Snooker as Rich Landrum conducts this interview on Worldwide Wrestling. With me, the world tag team champions, Jimmy Snooker, the superfly Paul Orndorff. Paul, last week we had the Anderson brothers here back in the area, back together, Gene and Ole Anderson. Minnesota Wrecking Crew, former World Tag Team Champions, and I'm sure they're going to be hot on your trail. I'm afraid, too. You know, they got credentials all a mile long. You know, they held the belts, I believe, longer than anybody uh, anybody else that ever had them. They even held them longer than uh, Flair and uh, Valentine. I think they held them for over two years, and they were, never were defeated. But the Anderson brothers were defeated, so we do know they can be beaten. And, uh, you know, they are one heck of a fine team. you got to give them uh, credit where credit's due. They go out there and they wrestle, and, uh, you know, you can't agree on the way they, they, they go out there and do, do this stuff, but they are, you know, they are fine wrestlers, and uh, they tell you what, they're going to give us a heck of a run for these belts. I'm sure they will. Jimmy, you know, uh, I'm sure that you all, uh, they, I've heard them say in the past, well, they don't know, Jimmy Snook and Paul Orndorff don't know anything about us. I don't think that's true. I can't see that. You two being world champions, you scouted them. You're bound to see the tapes and the films of them. Well, let me tell you something, brother. You know, just one thing that myself and Paul Orndorff realized that these two men do have more experience than myself and Paul do. But there's another thing you got to realize that when you get into that ring, brother, that's the most important thing that you can prove to yourself and you either prove to the other tag team who's the best and what his wrestling is all about. And this is what the most important thing is, these belts. And that's what takes a lot of courage and a lot of fight in that ring because without these things, brother, we wouldn't be inside there. But let me tell you another thing again, brother. You could never take these guys easy because, like I said, they've got more experience than myself and Paul. But myself and Paul, we're definitely going to go in there, brother, and we're going to put them and give them a hell of a battle. There's no question about it. They're, you know, I guess they're probably, next to you guys, are the most perfect wrestling machine in a tag team combination that we have around. Interesting pairing, right? Jimmy Superfly Snuka and Paul Orndorff in the winter of 1978 with an interview with Rich Landrum. Uh, kind of low-key, 
They're kind of working out their promo, but heck of a tag team for its time. So during the territory days of professional wrestling, you would stay in one place for a year. It's not like in 2021 where you see one wrestler for a decade, 15 years in one company. Wrestlers would move around from place to place to try to kind of understand different styles of wrestling. Portland was different from Dallas, and Dallas was different from New York, and New York was different from Indianapolis. Indianapolis was different from Puerto Rico. So there was always different styles for wrestlers to be able to understand, to be able to make money, to get over in certain places. Well, Paul Orndorff was no different. You heard him there on Worldwide Wrestling in the Mid-Atlantic area for the NWA. Well, now he goes to Georgia Championship Wrestling. He makes his debut in April of 1982, there is Paul Orndorff there with veteran Jim Dalton as his opponent. Gordon Soley on the call. Uh, you'll really love his finisher. It's not the pile driver, but a fisherman's suplex, like the perfect plex from Kurt Ennick. Uh, Paul Orndorff, the winner against Jim Dalton. Do you notice Gordon Soley on the call there was putting over Jim Dalton as a dangerous competitor? And even though this was the debut of Paul Orndorff, but 
you kind of like that Gordon Soley is making sure that you knew that Jim Dalton could win the match. And of course, Orndorff comes out on top for the victory. As I've mentioned, Paul Orndorff, just like a lot of wrestlers during that time, would go from territory to territory. So Paul Orndorff spent some time at Georgia Championship Wrestling, but also wrestled for Bill Watts and Mid-South Wrestling. Mid-South Wrestling was based in Bixby, Oklahoma, and would travel in the mid-southern areas, a lot of Arkansas, a lot of Louisiana, a lot of uh, Texas, um, a lot of those territories uh, in the southwest and a little bit around the mid-south. That's exactly where you would see mid-south wrestling run by Bill Watts. And Paul Orndorff was part of that as well. Paul Orndorff is part of one of the best I would say one of the best angles that you'll see in wrestling over the last 30 years with Bob Roop. Uh, it's a long-term storytelling. This is before pay-per-view. But every week you would watch Mid-South Wrestling. It was written so wonderfully because there was continuity. There was connection from one week to the other. One of the complaints we have for 2021 is, is that either you see the same wrestling matches every week or the story does not link up. The story doesn't make sense from one month to the other. Well, with Bill Watts and that Mid-South Wrestling, it was on TV throughout the South and became a major power in 1986-87 when uh, everyone was able to see that product across the country when it became uh, syndicated in that cable overlay in that time. So I, um, I want to go back and hear from Paul Orndorff. Paul Orndorff takes on Tully Blanchard. They both wrestled together uh, in Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, in, in uh, Mid-South Wrestling. So many wrestlers wrestled in Mid-South to be able to get their way to maybe the NWA or to the WWF at the time. But if you went through Mid-South and went through the three to four to 5,000 uh, miles of traveling by car, in that territory, because that's how it was. Uh, no flights. You had to drive in some really dark uh, highways to be able to get from one town to the other. Well, Paul Orndorff was part of that as well. So this is this matchup against uh, Tully Blanchard. Jim Ross on the call. Scott Akbar, the direct cause of the injuries here in the Mid-South area. But whatever you reap, Therefore shall you sow, Akbar, and it looked like after what happened to him a minute ago that Dick Murdoch is back after his injury. Ernie Land is back. He'll be in the match later on. Ted DiBiase injured will be back in two weeks. So they're all men. They're all strong men. They're not just forgetting it. They're coming back to the place where it happened, Jim. Akbar is going to really get him from all sides. He dish it out. He'll have to take it. That's exactly right. You have to pay the consequences. And, of course, back to the match at hand right here. Paul Orndorff. It's got Tully Blanchard in a pinning predicament. However, Blanchard into the ropes. The referee must break the hole. And Blanchard did not break clearly. Seized the opportunity to gain the advantage on Orndorff. And comes down with a thunderous elbow right to the back. And now Blanchard, he's a he's a very aggressive man. Tully Blanchard has got quite a reputation of his, of his own to uphold. And he is a tough, tough man. Going for that standing suplex. Orndorff blocked him. Orndorff blocked the suplex and applied it to Tully Blanchard, and now Blanchard's on the defensive. Power knee by Paul Orndorff. Of course, the issue between Bob Root and Paul Orndorff building to a fever pitch. Orndorff wants that title. Bob Root has it, now Orndorff trying to go for it. And he's going for it. He's going to try to set Blanchard for that 
Boston Crab, a submission hold, one of the first submission holds ever used in wrestling, the Boston Crab. Orndorff's got it set, and Blanchard powers out. Orndorff's head has hit the mat. Now Blanchard, now becoming the aggressor once again. Blanchard going for the figure four. Blanchard, looks like Deja Vu going for that figure four. Now, and Blanchard has really got it locked in. Blanchard has really got that figure four locked in. But remember, Orndorff knows the reversal. Orndorff, along with Bob Root, devised the reversal. And now the hole is reversed. The hole is reversed. And now Orndorff has got the hole on Blanchard. Well, the fans screaming, and that's what it's all about. There you see Bob Root on the top rope coming down. Coming off that top rope. Back out, calls for the bell, Jim. We're going to have a disqualification this match. Roop is putting the boots to Paul Orndorff, and out goes Orndorff. And there you see Bob Roop coming from nowhere. Paul Orndorff had the figure four reversed and had the match in hand. There you have it, the disqualification off of the top rope. We'll be back. More action after this word from Mid-South Wrestling and the hand being raised of Paul Arndorf by Jack Howe. That was a hot rivalry in the early 80s. Paul Orndorff being a heel, then turning babyface because Bob Roop takes the North American Championship opportunity away from Paul Orndorff. Uh, so it's good to hear a young Jim Ross there on the call, along with Boyd Pierce back in the Mid-South uh, wrestling days. So Paul Orndorff really applying his craft going from place to place to show exactly what he can do. So think about the journey for Mr. Wonderful, right? For Paul Orndorff. So he starts off in wrestling in the late 70s. He is in Mid-South. He's in Mid-Atlantic. He's in the NWA Georgia Championship Wrestling. And he finally finds his way to the WWF in 1983. Now, keep in mind, all this experience since 1977, let's just say, him learning and training, he was a babyface and a heel. And so he learned how to be both. Orndorff's physique was phenomenal. Even for the 70s, even for the early 80s, his physique was phenomenal. That's one thing that never stopped, that he always looked great. Orndorff also was able to establish a, a gift to be able to give a great promo. He always came across as a heel to me, no matter what. He did some babyface stuff across the country, there's no doubt. But he always seemed like he was a personification of a heel because of that sourpuss look on his face and him kicking the bottom rope. And uh, he was the first wrestler I've ever saw that was kissing his biceps. I never saw that before. I didn't see that from Don Morocco. I didn't see that from Hulk Hogan. I, the first time I saw that was Mr. Wonderful kissing his biceps when he was a heel. But a good heel could also be a great baby face. So let's go back in time. After all those miles that he put on his car for Mid-South and Mid-Atlantic and all the other places he went to, he finally hits the WWF, the New York office in this matchup against Steve Lombardi. This contest is scheduled for one fall. In the ring from Brooklyn, New York, weighing 248 pounds, Steve Lombardi. His opponent, 
from Tampa, Florida, weighing 252 pounds, Mr. Wonderful, Paul Berndorf. Very intense, Paul Wonderf. He is all business in there. He always looks great. I've never seen Paul Orndorff look anything but great. But right now, if it's possible, he's even looking better. I don't know if he's a little more cut up or if it's that he's so well done, but he just looks unbelievable. Certainly at the top of his prime, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and Lombardi is taking command of Takedown, hair pull into a head scissor, kick out by Orndorff. Arm drag takedown, nicely done by Paul Orndorff. And another one. Orndorff working on the uh, arm drag to get him down. Paul Orndorff was an instant success with the World Wrestling Federation and Vince McMahon. And the thing that was really interesting about Paul's career in the WWF is he was turned babyface and heel, babyface and heel, and he wasn't in the territory that long. He wasn't in the WWF for 10 years. It was more like five or six years. But he turned babyface and heel so often as if the company didn't know what to do with Paul. So there's one thing that Paul did uh, like other wrestlers did, but he was able to get into the money of the WWF. And the money means that you're wrestling Hulk Hogan for the WWF championship. And they went around the loop a ton wrestling, and people thought Paul was so good as a heel uh, that he was able to wrestle Hulk Hogan a lot of different places across the country, especially in North America. They drew at the top of the card 64,000 people in Toronto for a house show. 64,000 people, according to the WWF. And I've seen that match, and uh, it's always very good because you always have that feeling maybe Orndorff can pull it off. He was that good. He was that convincing as a heel. Uh, and so there was a lot of matches that Hogan and Orndorff had, including this one at the old Philadelphia Spectrum. And this was on uh, TV uh, in the Philadelphia area where you could see Hulk Hogan against Paul Orndorff Managed by Bobby Heenan in Philadelphia. Gorilla Monsoon on the call. And the Hulkster's got to pay him back. It's payback time. He says, here we go again. Oh, look at that. He's busted open. He is busted. In fact, And Heenan can't do anything. I can't believe that this case goes to bust open in the first two minutes of the match. Yep. Talk about danger. You're looking at it right here. Well, the Hulkster doing his number... Orndorff, Orndorff taking a spot to the midsection. Now, Heenan, where Heenan's going to try to get the lock open. 
As I mentioned, Orndorff and Hogan went around the loop. They were in Philadelphia, as you just heard, at the Spectrum. They were at Madison Square Garden. Sets him across. 
Ross again goes for the backdrop. No. Great stopped and stuck a finger right in his eye. The Hulk is magic. I cannot believe how much punishment he can take. He's stuffing him in. Look at this, Pat. He's going for no. What power? Did you see that? As I mentioned, Orndorff and Hogan had a lot of matches, including uh, an epic match at Saturday night's main event on NBC. So everyone was able to see that matchup in the 80s. It was very interesting to see Paul Orndorff in that position just a year into the WWF being in matches with Hulk Hogan. You could tell that Vince McMahon was looking for someone to take on Hogan, and that really worked. But as I mentioned... It's very unusual the way the WWF used Orndorff. He was a babyface and a heel and turned so often. In modern days, you would say it would almost be like the big show, right? When he was the WWE, where he would be babyface, heel, babyface, heel. He would turn something like 25 times, right? Or something like that. Well, that's kind of how Orndorff was utilized. Back and forth as a babyface and a heel. But here's the big match. WrestleMania 1, where Paul Orndorff, again, he just got to the company in 1983. This is 1985 for WrestleMania 1. He's in the biggest match on the biggest card in the history of the WWE. I know that you can take a look at all of the big crowds that the WWE's had over WrestleMania's, but nothing more important than WrestleMania 1, because everything was on the line for Vince McMahon. If WrestleMania 1 would have failed... Who knows where Vince McMahon would be today? He put all his money, all of it, in the middle of the table and said, we're going to have celebrities and our main event's going to be Mr. T and Hulk Hogan against Roddy Piper and Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Think about that. Again, Orndorff's just in the company for a couple of years. He's done the loop with Hogan. And so think about how Vince looks at Orndorff and says, you know what, this is the perfect opportunity. We're going to put Paul Orndorff and his muscle and his ability with the mouth of Roddy Roddy Piper. Now, to preview WrestleMania 1, you go back to Madison Square Garden again, where it was almost monthly, where the WWE would uh, run shows in New York in Madison Square Garden. And there was that face-to-face, Hogan and Mr. T in the ring with Paul Orndorff and Rowdy Roddy Piper in a special Piper's Pit at MSG.
the good old days. <laughs> the good old days. Roddy Piper with Piper's Pit in the ring was Paul Orndorff and, of course, Bob Orton as the third guy, along with Hulk Hogan, Mr. T, and Jimmy the Superfly Snooker. And they met at a very special Piper's Pit March 17th of 1985. And that set up WrestleMania 1. And we know what happened there because that became a success for Vince McMahon. And, of course, Hulk Hogan and Mr. T come out on top and they win the main event for WrestleMania 1. So, of course, once again, we talk about the turn, right? So, clearly, there is a disconnect between Roddy Piper and Paul Orndorff because... Paul Orndorff, quote-unquote, didn't hold up his end of the bargain. Roddy Piper is embarrassed because he didn't win in the biggest event for the WWE at the time, WrestleMania 1. So there's a problem between the two, between Roddy Piper and Paul Orndorff. We call Piper's Pit, with two of wrestling's baddest dudes, Roddy Roddy Piper and his bodyguard cowboy ace Bob Orton are meeting with their former teammate and friend, Paul, Mr. Wonderful Orndorff, for the first time since the much talk about WrestleMania event in New York's Madison Square Garden six weeks ago, where they were defeated by Mr. T and Hulk Hogan. Bad feelings definitely exist between these men in the ring tonight, as you can hear. So let's go down and listen. Sit down. Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. I want to talk to you man to man. I want to talk to you man to man about WrestleMania. I want to talk to you man to man about WrestleMania and how... Let me tell you something, Ace. Get in that corner, dunce. Go ahead. Make my day. So, would you mind going in the corner, Mr. Orton? Okay, okay, he's a little afraid. He's a little afraid. Are you a happy person now? Huh? Huh? Sit down, sit down. Ladies first. Okay. Okay. I'm sitting. I'm sitting. Listen, I want you to understand something. I understand what you're going through, and I have, I feel sorry for you in a way, because after all, after all, <laughs> I don't know what it's like myself, but you are a loser. Stay! Stay! I'm a loser, huh? Oh, yeah. 
your job, hightailing it back to the dressing room, and you left me there flat. Baloney! Baloney, no, no. I was fighting T. I was fighting Hogan. I was fighting everybody. Everybody that wants to fight. You know what? You know what you was doing? You know what's happened to you, man? I'll tell you what happened to you. You lost your guts, man. That's what I think. Here, I picked you for a partner. I took you under my wing. You lost your guts, brother, and you tell me you didn't. Let me tell you something, Piper. I'm going to tell you what you've been doing. You've been drinking too much of your own bath water is what you've been doing. Listen, listen. You want to? Hey, you want me to tell you? You want me to tell you on the square, man? You want me to tell you something on the square? I th I think you're nothing but a piece of garbage, man. No, no. You hey, you want to fight? I'll slap you just as fast as you slap me. Let me tell you something, man. You're nothing but a piece of garbage. Not only did you embarrass me, did you embarrass Ace? You embarrassed your own family. You keep my family out of there. You shut up! Don't shut up! What? If that's the way you're going to be, if that's the way you're going to be, brother, I'm going to take my ball and I'm leaving. To heck with you, man. So right after WrestleMania 1, Paul Orndorff turns babyface. Now we go to July of 1986 in Poughkeepsie, New York. Here's a tag team matchup with the Heenan family. It's Big John Studd and King Kong Bundy against Hulk Hogan and Paul Orndorff. Paul Orndorff at this time is a babyface. And again, uh, he's a babyface after he had that run-in, as you just heard right there, with Roddy Piper and A-Sword on Saturday night's main event. Okay, so now, uh, not even a year later, a little bit more than a year later, here's Orndorff going from babyface to heel. Our turn on Hulk Hogan. What happened?
Well, the no, no, no from Vince McMahon and Bruno Sammartino on the call was that Orndorff put Hogan into a pile driver. One of the biggest turns at the time because it's like, wow, Orndorff was a heel, as we just documented for you at WrestleMania 1, becomes a babyface for a year, and then turns again. And once again, Orndorff and Hogan go through the loop, and they're able to make box office because Orndorff becomes one of the number one henchmen, one of the number one heels in the company, aligned with Bobby the Brain Heenan. As a matter of fact, Bobby the Brain Heenan was a manager for Paul Orndorff twice, and Orndorff fired Heenan twice. It's just such a disconnect for me because I think it was a, such a miss by the WWE. They used up Orndorff for WrestleMania 1. They used him for 64,000 people in Toronto. That thing is available on the Peacock Network, that matchup between the two. They had steel cage matches, all type of specialty matches. We just heard here in this podcast how they were able to wrestle in big cities like Philadelphia and Madison Square Garden in New York City. But it was still a miss, though, uh, that, yes, there was money made with those two at the top of the card. But Orndorff, yes, he, he made a good living, but... The thing is, is that he didn't get a chance to get the big gold. I want you to think about this with Paul Orndorff's career. And this is why I think it was a miss for him. During that time that he wrestled in the WWE, there was the WWF Championship. There was the Intercontinental Championship. There was the World Tag Team Championships and the Women's Championship. I think there was a WWF Women's Tag Team Championship at some point, but it was rarely defended. You didn't see him very often. But for the most part, I just named for you the four main championships. For the time that Paul Orndorff was in the WWE, from 1983 to 1988, again, there's a lot there. A lot of turns, a lot of big-time matches, a lot of main event matches. Paul Orndorff never held a championship in the WWE. Again, it's not like today where everyone has a championship, but I know that the Intercontinental Championship was the worker's belt. The WWF Championship was usually a babyface like Hogan, like uh, Bob Backlund, wrestlers like that. But Orndorff never held a championship after all those years in the WWE. Now, so the last time that he wrestled in the WWE after this time here turning on Hogan and going through that in the late 80s, like 86, 87, his last match was against Rick Rude in Augusta, Georgia 
on January 4th, 1988. So then after that, he goes into semi-retirement. I think one of the reasons why is because um, there was an issue uh, with Paul Orndorff as far as health is concerned. He had a, he, was, he was running a bowling alley in Fayetteville, Georgia, stepped away from wrestling, and uh, was uh, a guy that had a hard time with his right arm. He was noticeably smaller due to the neck injury that caused nerve damage and eventually the atrophy of his right biceps, uh, which is very noticeable, as a matter of fact, once he got to WCW. So here we go. So after like 88 to 90, where he had... Uh, a few appearances in the WWE, but then went to WCW in 1990. And he made his in-ring debut of the Clash of Champions in Beckley, West Virginia on June 9th, uh, defeating Nasty Ned Brady, uh, and was able to be part of the Clash of Champions, was part of Dudes with Attitudes, which was a horrible gimmick. Uh, he was with Sting, Luger, Junkyard Dog, the Steiner Brothers, the Dudes with Attitudes are something to try to establish the baby faces in 1990 as he, Orndorff also teamed with Junkyard Dog and Elegante. So I thought that he wasn't used properly because, again, a classic heel, right? Uh, so when he first came in, he comes in as a baby face. But he had some good matches, including a matchup against Sting. And that's what he's doing. He's pulling back, but Sting fighting out. Forearm shot to the head. And again, Sting goes down. Paul Orndorff has knocked Sting to the canvas again. And he's going for the pile driver. This is it. And no one does it better. Sting counters the pile driver on Orndorff. Scorpion, he's going for him. He's going to the Scorpion deadlock. Can he turn him? Can he turn him? Go under him. Go under him. Sting around. No, he's got it on. No, he's got him. The Scorpion deadlock is on. I told you it's going to be Megan Sting. And the match is over. So Paul Orndorff, in late in his career, put over Sting uh, in the early 90s before the NWO. Uh, there was Paul Orndorff in WCW taking care of Sting at center, at center stage in Atlanta. Okay, there's one funny thing that <laughs> Paul Orndorff. So Paul Orndorff is losing a lot of matches. And... It was a gimmick where Paul Orndorff was like, man, I don't even feel like I'm Mr. Wonderful anymore. Why am I losing so many matches? And he was putting over Young Talent at the time. It was really the right thing for Orndorff to do. But it was a good gimmick because Orndorff was losing a lot on WCW uh, in the early 90s. So he's looking around like, wait a minute, man. I've had a, a great career. Why am I losing so many matches? And then he got inspiration <laughs> from Gary Spivey.
Gary Spivey? Mr. Wonderful, they let me back here to see you. Gary Spivey of the Psychic Companions Network? What are you doing here? I got a vision. I knew you weren't okay. There's something I have to tell you. And I know you're not okay. You did? Yes. How did you know that? I got a vision. Psychics know. You gotta listen to me. Gary, I used to be the highest rated wrestler in the whole world. I used to have so many belts that I, I, I could carry them all. I know. I can see these things. You're not okay, but you're Mr. Wonderful. And you're not feeling so wonderful. These things are going to pass. I see great things for you. You have to be Mr. Wonderful. That's you. That's you. I, I, I used to be Mr. Wonderful. You, no, no, no. Listen to me. You are Mr. Wonderful. They call you Mr. Wonderful. True. Look in the mirror. Who do you see? Look in the mirror. Get up. Look in the mirror. Who do you see? I see you. I see Mr. Wonderful. You see the vision I see. See, look, you'll see the same vision I see. I see Mr. Wonderful. Who do you see? I am Mr. Wonderful. I see? am Mr. Wonderful. You are Mr. Wonderful. Yes, I am Mr. Wonderful. They call you Mr. Wonderful. I am Mr. Wonderful. And you know you're wonderful too. I look better than I've ever did before. See my visions? Bigger cars, bigger houses, more money. I see Mr. Wonderful. There you are. You see what I see. They call you Mr. Wonderful. And you know you're wonderful too. No problems. You're Mr. Wonderful. Craziness, right? Crazy. But Gary Spivey, you had to see this for yourself, by the way, on YouTube. I mean, the audio is one thing, but you got to see Gary Spivey. When you see him, you're going to be like, what is on his head, right? What is on his head? But he was a psychic, and that was hot back then in the 90s. If you're a psychic, <laughs> you, got, you made money. <laughs> somehow, Gary Spivey was there to help Mr. Wonderful. Okay, so story time. All right, let's do story time with Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. So he was nobody to mess with. Paul Orndorff, no, nah, you weren't going to mess with him. It's one thing to be uh, a professional wrestler and be able to do the job and do whatever promoters ask, but the persona was someone that was very, very tough, away from the ring. You weren't going to mess with Paul Orndorff. There's a handful of guys in the history of the business, you know, like Ron Simmons is one of them, um, Butch Reed is one of them, there's certain guys where it's like, yeah, you're just not going to mess with them. Kurt, uh, I think Kurt Angle also is part of that. Sort of like real tough guys. Meng, uh, Haku. Yeah, you're not messing with him. But I think Paul Orndorff is in that category as well. Tony Schiavone on What Happened When on his, pay, on his um, podcast with Conrad Thompson. Tony Schiavone was working in WCW and was doing interviews and, of course, it would be the out-of-market interviews. Hey, don't forget to come to the Rosemont Horizon Chicago to see, 
World Championship Wrestling, come to, you know, whatever, this city, come to this city. And there would be wrestlers that would do interviews for certain markets, Dallas, Charlotte, Atlanta, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, whatever, right? So during this time, Paul Orndorff is an agent. I, I know it's known as producers today, but he was an agent. And he was trying to wrangle the talent up to make sure that they were on time for their interviews. And then Tony takes the story from here. I'll tell you exactly what happened because it happened right at my feet. Right at my feet. Um, we were doing interviews on the set at center stage. With Gene Okerlund. With Gene Okerlund. And Paul was one of the agents. And Paul was trying to round up guys. I don't think Vader was late. I think, if, if I remember correctly, and I think I do, Vader, <clears throat> they couldn't find him. I see. And we needed him to come out. I don't think the, I don't think a concern about interviews running long and paying the crew extra to do it because the crew was there all day to do whatever we needed to do. I don't think there. I don't think that was a concern. So the microphone is open. An interview is over. Paul comes out with a sheet and it's supposed to be Vader. And Paul says, "I can't fucking find him. Fuck him, or something to that extent." We'll do something else without that motherfucker, okay? But he may, may have said prima donna. So they start to do something else. Paul comes backstage, and I'm standing there. There was a room where we did our meetings. And Paul was standing there, and he didn't have his shower shoes on. He was he was still he was working clothes. Okay. And Vader came up and pushed him and said, you motherfucker, if you got something you got to say to me, you say it to my face. Well, when he pushed Paul, Paul fucking clocked him, threw him down, got him down and fucking was stomping the boot, was stomping his head into the concrete. Stomping right on top of his head and Vader was saying, get him off of me! Get him off me! And Paul was just stomping the fuck out of him. And I remember guys getting around and pulling off and I remember Kevin Sullivan saying, when they finally pulled him apart, Kevin Sullivan said, let Paul go. And he's, I remember he saying, if you don't let Paul go, Vader's going to take a cheap shot while you're holding him. That's what kind of guy he is. And they finally pulled him apart, and Vader was bleeding. So, one punch clocked to knock him down. Not so sure that happened. He may have just, he may have just taken him down. Uh, but once he got him down, he was stomping the back of the head into the concrete, or on the stomping his face into the concrete by stomping on the back of his head. Uh, Eric wasn't there. Uh, Eric had heard so many things, and this was before we all had cell phones. So there was a payphone back there. Eric said, let me talk to Shivani. And I told Eric exactly what I just told you. Although it was probably a lot of pressure in my mind. And he said, so Vader instigated this. I said, oh, yeah, Vader's the one that shoved him and, and you know, challenged him. So that's how it all went down. And I, I'm, I don't know if I'm proud to say, but I can tell you it happened right there in front of me. And it was no, there were no shower shoes. The uh, photo shoot could have been. I don't think it was. You know, Vader just was roaming around there, and they couldn't find him. Because, you know, uh, running these guys down was has always been a big problem. Right. Uh, and uh, the bigger the arena, the tougher it is sometimes to find him. You can tell guys, you got interviews at 430 be there. They're still not going to be there. That's just the way they were. And that's why agents were assigned to run these guys down. Uh, Vince had it really uh, pretty much choreographed. But that was what happened then. I Imagine that. Paul Orndorff beat up Vader, 
Then Vader says, get him off me. Vader was 450 pounds, as you remember, right? And Paul Orndorff, late in his life, having an issue with his arm, still could beat the shit out of Vader. For real. Not as an angle, but for real. As Tony Schiavone talked about, he was sitting right there, standing there doing interviews, and then that happened at his feet. How about another story about how tough Paul Orndorff was? B. Brian Blair, who traveled the territories as part of the WWF as well. Well, there was apparently an incident between Paul Orndorff and Tony Atlas. Okay, so if you know Mr. USA Tony Atlas, one of the best bodies in the history of the business going back to the 1970s, well, you know, wrestlers travel with each other. It's happening today, but definitely back then, to save cost, there would be four or five guys in a car traveling from town to town. And B. Brian Blair tells a story of what happened to Tony Atlas. You remember when Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield first had their first bout and Tyson bit the ear of Holyfield? Well, night in Wheeling, West Virginia, um, Tony Atlas was screaming and nobody wanted to be around him because he found out that he had to do a job and he's slamming locker room doors. He's saying nobody can kick my ass, but maybe Andre the Giant and I doubt that could even happen. And he's slamming doors, locker room doors. And he says, now I got to do a job for Dino Bravo. I can't lace my boots up or whatever. And going on and on. And, um, um, I, I, I don't know if it was Dino Bravo, but he had to do a job for whoever he says. And uh, a couple of minutes later, it's kind of quiet, and I go around, and I was going to say something to Tony, because I like Tony. And I look, and he's got two syringes, three cc syringes, one in each ass cheek, just trying to, like, show off. Um, so he's taking six cc's of, three cc's of DECA and three cc's of TEST. He also told us he only ever took one deep ball a day. seat and uh like a big buick 
and they would push it all the way back for these 300 mile trips and so Orndorff and I would have to sit knee to knee in the back seat and since we were green you know what are we going to do with Murdoch and Carl Cox you know two big superstars and um, you know much we, we respected our veterans and um, of the business so that's where that came from uh, just so the audience knows and um, then uh, um, I see this bowling alley and there's a like a, it says bowling and I look to the right there's like a uh, there's grass there's a asphalt there's uh, trailers without the uh, semis on them uh, parked up by this um, uh, looks like a basketball court so I said, that looks like a good place. You guys could either fight on the grass or you couldn't fight. And Tom's going, trying to interrupt me. No, 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 don't encourage it. And, and he's going on and on. And it's, it's, Tommy was the funniest thing about the whole thing. And so Tony walks all the way to the asphalt. This is at night, but it's lit. It's got lights. And uh, we start walking and uh, Tommy's saying, no, guys, please don't fight, guys, please don't fight. All of a sudden, they converge on each other like two bulls. Um, Paul winds up going behind him and bellies to, belly to backs him, and they roll on the, make about two turns on the concrete, and I can't see Paul's head, and I can't see Tony's head, and all of a sudden, I hear, ah, you cheated, ah, you cheated, and Paul goes, and an ear the whole bottom lobe of his ear shoots off. Now Tommy Rich starts screaming, oh my God, it's an ear. Oh my God, he bit his ear off and he's crying and he goes and he grabs, it's his ear, it's his ear. So Tommy's crying. <laughs> so uh, uh, Paul um, got off of him because Tony says, "I," you know, he gave, he said, my ear's bit off, I quit, I quit, I quit. And uh, you cheated, you son of a gun. I say, and they went lipped off a little bit, but uh, Tony didn't lip off to him that much. Paul was doing more of the lipping to him. And, uh, he, and he asked me to hold his crucifix when he got out. He had a gold crucifix, and he gave it to me, and he had a white uh, cut-off tank top and uh, a red pair of University of Spartans uh, football gym pants and a pair of white tennis shoes and white socks very tan and never forget and um you know when after uh tommy rich picked up that ear he was literally bawling i mean crying hard and we all get back in the car um and um we take tony to the hospital well on the way there tony man we better get out again and do it and paul says let's pull over we'll, we'll do it again Oh, just take me to the hospital, he says. So we get him to the hospital. This is in the, in the Atlanta Territory. We, uh, we take him to the hospital. They said he's got to stay overnight. So we went back to Atlanta. We left Tony there, and he never came back to the Territory. The next time we saw each other was in New York. From Hannibal TV. <laughs> so there are two stories right there of how tough Paul Orndorff was. Uh, against Tony Atlas, and that was a heck of a story, and... Whew. And then against Vader. It's very interesting. So let's hear from the man himself. Paul Orndorff had a number of things to say. He uh, felt like he left money on the table because of loyalty when he was wrestling for the WWF at the time. Let's go to bostonwrestling.com. bostonwrestling.com. They have a interview with Paul Orndorff. Here's Paul in his own words talking about how he had movie roles, an opportunity to leave the WWF for movie roles, but 
didn't happen. Earlier, you really wanted to be a heel coming into New York. We really discussed WrestleMania one in depth in our madness behind the Mania DVD we did back in March. Post WrestleMania, the babyface turn began. What were your thoughts on that at the time? You know, where you really were, you were the top guy in WrestleMania one, which you got on as one of the most memorable matches in the history of the business. Did you like the idea that you were going to turn face all of a sudden? I'd rather take six, seven months off and give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> See, I had movie parts. I had to part in Rambo. I had to part. They flew me to New York. I met Sasha Stallone, his wife, and I met uh, Stallone's agent. Three weeks later, I flew to San Diego, met Sly Stallone, Johnny Stallone, blah, 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 took my shirt off, everything else. They wanted to see my body. They wanted to see me with a black shirt on. I did a whole deal with him. They said then, he said, you got to part. About a week later, they said I need to be in. Uh, I, he needed to get my flight information to fly to Mexico. So we were going to do the movie. It was in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Six to eight weeks. Six weeks, shoot, with a two-week extension. So I asked Vince about it. And you know that... Well, you know, this is your gentleman. story. <laughs> How did you feel when they denied you? How different could your life have been if you take a look at what Hogan did with movies okay. and Piper and The Rock and so on Why and so forth? What do you think? But you see, I was stupid. I should have just went ahead and done it. I should have done it. And he told me this. He said, you'll do the Rocky too. And Vince knew all this. Because you know they did another Rocky. Right. I had to part May the good Lord take my life here if I'm lying and dying. I had to part. He wouldn't let me do it. He so said twice. Huh? The twice he did that. On two occasions. Yes. But you see, I was stupid, dumb, and loyal. Mm -hmm. I stayed there. Then I get hurt there. And do you know he hasn't given me one penny since the day I got hurt there? Not one penny. And I got hurt and still worked for three months till it got to the point my arms swelled out or shriveled up to about 13 and a half inches. And I put knee pads and everything on my arms. So and I just could in walk comparison, out. how big was your other arm? This one? Yeah. Oh, God, this 19 and a half yeah. in that range when I was jailed. And I got hurt in Toronto, Canada. And how did that happen? I kicked under the chin. By somebody that was taking drugs. Really? Really. And then they wonder why I get mad. I get, I'm getting mad now. I don't even want to talk about it. You're lucky he's not a racehorse. He'd win the Belmont and the Kentucky Derby also. Because he's the greatest athlete today. And he's the only man that ever left the champion of the world, Hulk Hogan Lane. And he has a simple name. It's just Mr. Wonderful. And here he comes. You know, Bobby, some people would say just what you just said to everybody out there, that that would be bragging. That that would just be thinking that you're cocky. But you know something? That's exactly right. The truth really hurts. Because Hulk Hogan, I have earned respect. I deserve respect. I was drafted in the NFL. I was in the College Football Hall of Fame. High School All-American. The greatest athlete to ever come out of the state of Florida. I've earned it. 
I deserve to be the next world heavyweight champion. You see, Hulk Hogan, the difference between you and I is that I'll do anything at any cost to get something I want. I'll even sell my own family down the river for one reason. And that's how world's heavyweight felt. You see something? I left you laying right in the middle of the ring. Right then I left you because you thought that I was your friend. <laughs> friend. You're really dumb. Dumb. Because Hulk Hogan, I've got you running wild right now. You was on the Rangers at the point of no return. Let's see. He trusted me and look what he got. He got the most devastating move in wrestling today. And now you people out there are going to see Mr. Hogan take the most devastating move, the power driver. And you know something, Hogan? It didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way, Hogan. All you had to do, man, was pick up that telephone like a friend, like I always done when you wanted me. I was there. Well, you know there was a time, Hogan, when they tried to change the original, when they tried to change the formula. But you know something? It didn't work. The old Mr. Wonderful is back. The classic Mr. Wonderful is here. And you know something else, Hogan? You see what happens when you get too big for your britches. Now you people out there look at the number one man in wrestling today. Heavyweight champion in order to totally clear his mind for his World Heavyweight Championship match with Ric Flair. A lot of people seem to feel very strongly that uh, this man is indeed the uncrowned World Heavyweight Champion. Uh, yet now, it's all gone. The National Heavyweight Championship, uh, all of these, sort of a rebuilding process. That's very good. I'll tell you why, Gordon. You know, everything's a gamble. Life is a gamble. Athletics is a gamble. I took a gamble, Gordon, as far as I'm concerned, and like you just said, a lot of people out there saw what happened, that I should be the world champion right now, but I'm not, so that's going to make me work just that much harder, Gordon. You know, I came into Georgia area with nothing, and right now I have nothing, but that's the way it is. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do just that, but it's going to be a new Paul Orndorff. I'm coming out for one reason now, and that's to get my belt back, the one that I gave away, that national belt, I hear they're going to hold a tournament now for it, and I'm going to be in it, but I haven't forgotten Ric Flair, because I gave that belt up for one reason, and that's to go for the big one, that's what it's all about, that's where the bucks are, and that's what I wanted, and like I said, if I had to do it over again, I'd do just that, but you people out there are going to be seeing a new Paul Orndorff, I'm coming out, if I got to do hurt somebody, makes no difference, I'm going to make my mark again, because I'm going to be right back up there, that's what it's all about. Brandon Bowe, Paul Orndorff. Some of the great promos through the years of Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Uh, terrific promo. Babyface or heel, you heard a combination of it right there. He was pretty solid. A couple of other uh, dignitaries talking about Paul Orndorff and how special he was as a pro wrestler like Jim Ross with Conrad Thompson. Paul Orndorff is going to get the call to replace Kerry on this card. He's going to be the one facing Arn Anderson. Meltzer would write, Orndorff was actually a replacement for Kerry Von Erich, who was supposed to start at the TV tapings last Monday and was penciled in for the match with Arn at Clash. 
but Von Erich no-showed Monday's tapings, instead working a main event in Memphis against Jerry Lawler. And by Wednesday, he was fired before he ever actually started, and Orndorff was brought in for the spot. What do you remember about Orndorff coming in? I mean, this is a guy who just a handful of years prior was selling out stadiums with Hulk Hogan, uh, and of course figured in in a major way the main event of the very first WrestleMania, and now he's looking for a gig in 1990. It goes to show you how quickly things can change in professional wrestling, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Paul was a, you know, Paul had I had good experiences with Paul. Paul was a Bill Watts guy. You know, Eddie Graham discovered uh, Paul Orndorff. He was an amazing athlete, a hell of a running back in college, with a with a with a gifted body without question, and great intensity. Uh, especially in his younger years, great intensity. Uh, and but he was an Ole guy. Ole like Paul. They had a you know Paul, Paul lived in Atlanta, outside of Atlanta, but he's local. So uh, there was a, a Ole had a confidence level in Paul. Uh, but I I was more excited, quite frankly, about Orndorff coming in than I was about the prospect of Kerry Von Erich coming in because. I knew that Orndorff was, needed to be booked. He needed the money. He, you know, he, he was motivated. He was local uh, for what that's worth because we did a lot of TV in that, in that Atlanta region. So he's right there. And he was on Vince's TV, right? I mean, nationally, Orndorff oh, was yeah. the bigger star. Yeah. yeah. Had great name identity. He'd been, he'd been featured uh, at WrestleManias. And that, like you said, the Hogan thing uh, was big. It, you know, he made a lot of money doing that. I think he bought a bowling alley or something down there in south of Atlanta. Uh, and I know I saw the other day, unfortunately, his health is not good right now. And so our thoughts and prayers with Paul. And uh, But he's a tough son of a bitch boy. He was a physically tough son of a bitch. And, you know, the, his famous fight with Vader wearing shower shoes is a gross and legend by the week, it seems like. But he, he feared nobody. And Ole liked that. Ole liked the fact that Orndorff was a legitimate tough guy, had no tolerance for bullshit, and uh, and was motivated to make money. So I I, I I was excited about Paul. I always liked Paul. I loved his intensity, but quite frankly, at that point in time, <clears throat> he may have been a little bit past his peak, but still good enough to draw money. I think officially he retired in early 88 because of this arm injury. And as you said, did focus on running his bowling alley in Fayetteville, Georgia. Uh, but then, of course, as we know, he pops back up in 1990 to do some matches uh, on the independent scene. And then here with WCW. Let's talk about um, what they're going to be doing uh, when we're talking about Paul Orndorff. At the next pay-per-view, Great American Bash... It's dudes with attitudes. Eligante, Junkyard Dog, and Paul Orndorff taking on the four horsemen. You're exactly right. Sting's group is here to battle the horsemen. But it's Eligante, Junkyard Dog, and Paul Orndorff. It just feels like hodgepodge. Um, Fast forward, and by the end of the summer, Orndorff's out of here. He's not long for this world. I guess he was just brought in simply to get through this clash and this pay-per-view and Move along. Well, why don't you think there was more long-term plans for Paul? Well, his in, his arm issues was one thing. His health was one thing. Uh, you know, trying to recreate the magic that somebody had in a previous generation is always daunting. So, uh, 
you know, I guess Ole saw all he needed to see and decided Paul didn't quote unquote have it anymore. And, uh, so that was an Ole decision in that regard. But, uh, and again, Paul was miscast. He was, he was misbooked, should have been a heel, uh, cause he good at it. And because we, we were trying to build, it looked to me like what we were headed for was a baby face territory with all these uh, top guys on the baby face side. You got to have heels that can help them along and, and lead matches. The heels call the matches by, unless it's a d- disparity in experience. And so that, that changes that formula, but under normal circumstances, the heel calls the match and Paul could have done a great job with that with some of these baby faces and help them get better at what they do. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Well, as I mentioned, one of the all-time greats in professional wrestling passing away, um, had a hard time with dementia. Uh, We know that his health has not been good uh, this year, but he leaves behind a legacy as a person that, again, never won a championship in the WWE, but didn't define him. He was a WWE Hall of Famer, of course, but wrestled in the territories and actually wrestled well as a baby face and a heel. I always remember him as a heel, but he was able to make it work um, on both sides of the fence when it comes to professional wrestling. Rest in peace, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, one of the all-time greats in professional wrestling. We'll leave you now with words and memories from Mr. Wonderful. He talks about his career in the WWE. New York, Vince McMahon. Square Garden, you were in top of the world right there, that major. You know, we were getting 30, 40, 50, 60. Me and Hogan uh, worked, at, I believe, in San Francisco. We had 87,000 people there. And I've been the main event, the first WrestleMania. Me and Roddy Piper, because Hal Hogan and Mr. T, you gotta have a little show business, man. I don't care. But you gotta know how to do it. And I used to be a heel. I was an asshole. People hated me, and I wanted them to hate me. Because I do whatever it took, and it didn't matter. I do whatever it took for somebody not to like me. Because the more I'm hated, and I went for the money and didn't care about the after effects of it. <laughs> it was brutal. I mean, I've had my tires cut. <clears throat> I've had my windows broken out of my car. I got uh, a whiskey bottle in the ring. Somebody threw in a little whiskey to hit me. Got me 27 stitches, right? When that happened, I was one pissed off man. I said, ain't no damn bike gonna do that without me popping their butt. Cops and stuff weren't doing what they were supposed to do, and the fans were going crazy. They went to see me get my butt beat by you. You could be big and everything, and then if you had to get in a fight, and I got in a lot of fights when I was up in New York, but people didn't like me, and if they tried to, you know, with me and something, hey, let's get it on, and it would happen, boom. And I've had it happen more than once. It got to the point where I had to take a cab, and then it got to the point I had to take a police car from Madison Square Garden and different places where I went in a police car. I have taken cabs there and out, and then once they found out that I was in a cab or whatever, I couldn't do it. They, they tried to shake the car to flip it over. 
You wouldn't believe it. The people went cuckoo. But you know it. The more they did it, the more money I made. You know what people don't like? The truth. Tell me somebody better. Tell me. That somebody had a better body. That had psychology. That had a whole head of hair. And that could be pissed off and shown it. I had it all. And I know I had it all. I know it. But my paycheck showed it. There are people that come up to me to this day and say they still go to the gym and they remember all this and that and whatever in there. It didn't make an impact. It did. Some people don't like me. That's okay. I don't like them either. That's the way I am.